1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Thanks for downloading the pod. My guest today is an old friend of the podcast, a colonist of Marine, a serving United States Marine Corps officer just posted at Okinawa. On this episode we discuss Op Iceberg, the US invasion of Okinawa in the Pacific War and its legacy in the Corps, the US tilt to the Indo-Pacific region and what we can learn from past battles in Singapore and Menorca, modern day foraging in order to reduce the operational logistic burden, what we can learn from the war in Ukraine, the ongoing war in Israel, his comments to the Marine Instagram account, how that's been going lately and his plans for the future. Legendary United States Marine Corps Intelligence Officer Pete Ellis, who had the foresight to draft a plan that helped defeat the Japanese in World War II. And then we finish off with his current reading on Desert Island debts. We had some real comms issues on this one and the sound quality is not as good as normal, but hopefully it won't detract from your listening of a very interesting episode so don't forget to like follow share on social media and please leave a good review on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcast from if you like what you're hearing then you can buy me a coffee via the link in the show notes and this helps cover ongoing costs like site hosting let's crack on Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been uh, since February, I think, since we last recorded one. So what have you been up to since then?
1: Yeah, so uh, Colin, it's obviously great to be on your podcast and I appreciate you having me back. So I've moved all the way from uh, Newport, Rhode Island, out to Okinawa, Japan. And I'm stationing amongst uh, tens of thousands of Marines out a year in the first island chain, as we like to call it. And uh, I'm assigned to one of the premier... Marine infantry fighting organizations. We have Marine Corps out here in uh, Okinawa, Japan, and uh, I'm the head of logistics for this uh, one of these great organizations. And the reality is, is my responsibility is um, kind of twofold. One is to serve my uh, my general and everything he needs, and the second thing is kind of serve as the senior logistics advisor for the entire uh, division.
2: I've been reading a lot about the war in the Pacific recently, especially about the invasion of Okinawa. It was the largest amphibious operation in World War II, fought by the U.S. Marine Corps and the Army. And there was three U.S. Marine Corps divisions and four Army divisions. And it was a tough fight over three months, with 12,500 killed and 36,000 wounded. On the Japanese side, there were over 77,000 Japanese Army killed, 30,000 Okinawan conscripts and large amounts of civilian uh, population. People don't know the exact numbers. Estimates thirty to 150,000. So is it still an iconic battle that's studied today?
1: Absolutely. Um, Also known as Operation Iceberg or the Battle of Okinawa really was a multi-service endeavor. You've got the Navy, you've got the Marines, you've got the Army, you've got the Coast Guard, all kind of fighting the Imperial Japanese. And what's unique about the lessons from Okinawa, what we've learned about Okinawa, is the island hopping campaign that the Marines embarked on just got progressively harder and harder and harder as you got closer to Japan there. The enemy was uh, more entrenched as you encroached upon and attacked uh, Japanese positions. And once we got to Okinawa, it really is a... It, it was just a whole different ball game here. Uh, the reality is that uh, the, the fight for Okinawa in Operation Iceberg uh, was so brutal uh, to the Marine Corps that it not only changed the character of the Marine Corps in many ways, but it really... The, the, the casualty tolls that we experienced from the Battle of Okinawa set the National Command Authority and the leadership of this... Uh, of the united states during world war II, well, i kind of set the path to okay this cannot be business as you no longer uh we have an enemy that will not give up and will not give in so those two factors means that every square inch of land will be fought over and uh here in okinawa i mean there's um infamous moments where you have the suicide clips where locals in fear uh you know, wrongly told that the Americans were going to do them, or to the innocent civilians that they surrendered to them. Uh, these civilians chose to, to jump off what is known as suicide cliffs. You have all these kind of hacksaw ridge that has been, been been made famous by the movie Metal Water recipients, and really just a uh, unbelievable fight for Okinawa. But yeah, been an unbelievable lesson for the Marine Corps and. You know, something we've, we've talked about before is that uh, the purple hearts that are being issued today were printed and made in response to uh, what was expected to be in the casualty totals that the Americans were going to see when we invaded Japan. And of course, two nuclear weapons changed that outcome forever.
2: Looking at the U.S. forces tilt to the Indo Pacific region, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the focus is on dispersed positions and island defense. What lessons can you draw in from history to inform what the Corps is doing today? I'm a huge, huge believer in history, especially military history, and the reason
1: why I believe in it is because it offers lessons across the generation. You know, as military, you know, guys, uh, we we tend to be enamored by you know, the Romans' the lessons they offered us. And the napoleonic staff system which is still with us today but more recently specifically in the indo pacific i find there's two main storylines in history that offer many lessons to the marine corps and one is the british expeditionary force experience in singapore counting on the british royal navy to come to the aid of the expeditionary force you know famously uh, that didn't happen and because that didn't happen, the evacuation never could occur and uh, reinforcements didn't show up. And ultimately, you had a, a British expeditionary force of uh, the Commonwealth surrender to a, I won't say a newly defeated, but I would, you know, I'll give credit to or credits to is that the Japanese, Imperial Japanese uh, forces were uh, kind of depleted and they were a, an inferior force to the British Expeditionary Force that was kind of defending Singapore. Because of the key pivotal moment that occurred in General Sling's kind of uh, disaster there.
2: Was it Vassal? General festival at Singapore?
1: Yeah, first of all. What you had was a situation where the Imperial Japanese struck the water purification plant and then... At that point, it was just a matter of days before the British were forced to surrender and the Royal Navy never showed up. So there was two key things that could have changed the outcome. Plus, the Japanese were already running low on ammunition. running low on food. There were extended supply lines and had the Royal Navy showed up, they could have easily interdicted and disrupted that supply chain that was coming down the Malay Peninsula. It really shows that an aggressive attack can really be devastating to a defense, and you know there's, there's countless lessons here, and that is you know something we we look at. I think there's there's a second storyline, and also from Alberta experience, uh, you know, and the Americans also have a, a long experience there with the Battle of the Corregidor and the surrender of the Philippines and the evacuation of the MacArthur or what later becomes the Baton Death Bar. There are many lessons there just for the Americans, but there are different lessons that I think we look at from a sea power perspective. And that is really what the Indo-Pacific is, in which sea power fight the a maritime fight really focused on sea power. What you can do on high seas uh, as a seafaring nation that the United States is and as a great power, that that is where, the, where, where America can really change the security environment. I would offer to you that, uh, we know this because the British Royal Navy for generations, uh, defined, uh, what was, uh, to be kind of the, the, uh, Pax Britannica as England and the Royal Navy shapes global power, uh, for w- what is kind of a couple hundred years. There, there's a kind of pivotal point in, uh, uh, this island called Menorca off the coast of uh, Spain and the Balearic Island chain. It, it's kind of a great stand-in for what is Taiwan to the kind of global security uh, community. Three times, England directs the Royal Navy to uh, uh, seize and defend and rule uh, this island known as Menorca. And it's thousands of miles away from uh, England. And it's this island that is off the coast of a great power, both great powers, both in France and Spain. And it's kind of a great standing for what is kind of China and Taiwan, thousands of miles away. People don't have a very good understanding of why Minorga is important. But what's interesting was that when you ask the average British, or, or at the time English, that they, they couldn't even find Minorga on a map, but merchants and the parliament and the government, all New orc and the reason why is because it sat critically at the mouth not at the mouth like Gibraltar but just past the mouth and it offered the world's largest in red harbor so it was critical to merchant trade that England as a island nation depended on and there's very many similarities here for the United States where Taiwan sits in the South China Sea is a pivotal place along a key security corridor about uh, which trillions of dollars of merchant traffic will maneuver through. Although most Americans can't find uh, Taiwan anymore, like Menorca, the government, our Congress, all find Taiwan just like the parliament found Menorca, extremely important. And that's why the British the period from the 1600s to the 1800s fought or control of Menorca three different times. Oddly enough, all three times the British lost control of Menorca and were able to re regain control of Menorca.
2: It's interesting you talk about Singapore as an example of uh, how the Japanese army worked, and uh, as you alluded, it was a foraging army and didn't really have a robust supply chain and relying more on what they could forage, steal, or even capture on the march. And eventually Slim, Nick Kahima and Infel was able to use this against him, but I know you're keen to get your core cool more involved in for provisioning and forging. Can you explain how you see this working and what it is exactly? I appreciate you bringing that up, and I'm a fan because
1: it really boils down to a math equation, and the reality is that General Smith has made it clear or common art many times, and he's posed this question in open forums why would I or I put quoting here why would I move water United States to anywhere positional deep or reverse island chain? Why would I do that and over thousands of miles and levels gallon of water costs a hundred times more because you move the water make it We have water purification capability you can buy it locally as she pull that logic thread further and further out very quickly it becomes clear that, if we're able to make water or buy water, can we buy fuel? Can we in the local markets and farms and grocery stores? Really, the answer it's, it it really boils down to depends. And I really kind of pull a lesson here from Alexander the Great. You know, as he's doing his great campaign across uh, the Eurasian continent, Alexander makes a kind of critical decision early on in his campaign. Instead of his supply chain reaching all the way back to Greece, he preserves only certain, you know, messages and finances and other critical kind of high value trips, make it back to Greece. But everything else, for the more, most part, over Alexander's great campaign or liberation, it comes local. And he's able to feed and maneuver his army over thousands of miles over many years far from his supply chains and is able to do that because he attacks during, you know, he allows the weather to dictate, you know, when he attacks, he allows the logistics to drive the operations because it's so important. And during, uh, both the Afghan and Iraq wars, we, and I say with the Brits, everyone else that was involved in the coalition of willing, we were able to turn total expanses of desert into big supply bases and big bases and we could feed thousands of people in the middle of nowhere. Hell we could deliver ice cream into a blazing hot desert with thirty different flavors. The reality is is that we were facing an adversary couldn't interdict any of that, couldn't shape that. Yet we still lost. Now we face a situation with a pure adversary in Minglings who could certainly change the outcome of the sites of engagement so gone is the 30 flavors of ice cream gone are the big doors and shops that America brings to war with it. those comforts that we have those creature comforts but we focus on survivability of the force and what that really boils down to is can you procure those things locally in order to preserve your force sustain your force when you start pulling from Alexander's lessons here. Maybe you go to an island, maybe you have a series of choices with particular islands you can go to. Maybe island A has got an incredible resources on it. Island B is, you know, kind of a little a little thinner resource. And maybe island C has almost no resources. And although island C may be the greatest tactical advantage, you as a commander have to make a hard decision here and says and, and ascertain whether or not it's worth bringing in the logistics to sustain yourself on islands when instead maybe it doesn't provide all the greatest tactical advantages to you but it does reduce the logistic burden on your horses Island A, you take or maybe it's island b and ultimately island C may come into play when the security conditions are in your favor but at the early onset of conflict uh, you're going to be you're going to be strapped to move all that you want and need and at the end of the day you have to boil it down to what you well, when I'm doing the math equation which is effective logistics when I do that stubby pencil work and we're writing all out all the math here we very quickly realize that for us to go to war, with well, sufficient resources we need, in the typical kind of context, the math does not favor us. If we start forging, kind of 21st century forging, not the version of Alexander the Great, then the math starts to balance out, especially at the platoon and company level. Now, I'm under no illusions that we're going to try to forge for a battalion or regiment or anything beyond that. But that's not in our game plan with the MLRs either. In kind of wide-ranging public documents, that talks effectively about the kind of small, dispersed teams able to operate effectively uh, on those kind of remote positions. That's why I, I
2: think uh, forging has got its place. I want to move the conversation on a bit now to Ukraine. The Ukrainians haven't made the progress that everybody's hoping they would, and they've been held up a massive... Minefields and defences in depth that have only advanced about 15 k uh, They've taken heavy casualties, estimates of 70,000 killed in action and 100 to 120,000 wounded in action, with the Russians approximately 300,000. Replacements are in many cases much older, and it was reported in the papers recently that they had to slash the medical criteria. Traditionally, massive fires and persistent operations favour the larger army, especially one with a bigger population, and this is a war that suits Russia. When you look round, the West is distracted by Israel, and Congress is in turmoil and Trump possibly inbound, it's not looking good for Zelensky. Sanctions haven't crippled the Russian economy, and the defence industry is keeping pace better than the West, with production of artillery is much higher. When you look at what Putin's spending on defence next year, it's going to be three times what it was in 2021 and double that of 2022. And they're spending roughly 27 billion on domestic security, i.e., the police, armed forces, national guard, and intelligence agencies and prisons, which is 40% of the budget. Oil exports to China are now at a record level, and oil sales to India are the same, and. Uh, some of that oil that's going to India has been refined and sold back to the West, so that keeps the money flowing into his coffers. Downside, the Russians, the Kremlin slashed healthcare and science, but funded propaganda via state-controlled media to cheer of a billion, so it keeps people on side with his messaging. And Richard Conley of the Royal United Services Institute says that this budget represents wholesale militarization of Russian society. And also, it's about getting the war sorted in Ukraine and about being ready for a military confrontation with the West in perpetuity. So, what lessons should we be taking from Ukraine, and what wrong lessons, probably more importantly, are we in danger of learning? That's a fantastic question because it's something we wrestle with. And let me
1: start off by saying, the war is not over. So, we certainly run the risk. Column, uh, taking a snapshot now. And saying okay these are the lessons. well the war isn't over so we don't know whether or not if these lessons are truly you know lessons yet they just may be kind of we, we're, we're like trying to catch a falling knife here we're going to get cut by it but there are themes, no doubt that i think are critically important and these themes are stuff that anyone who's in the security space is definitely watching and i'll I, I throw out some that are i think are, are, are invaluable I will tell you early on in the war, it was drones like the quadcopter and the DJI drones were what what amazing kind of capability. But Colin, here is what's really incredible about the drones is that it transition. It's not just drones; it's the FPV drones, the first person view. Drones. Because the Russians have countered with their own tactics, techniques, and procedures to counter those kind of DTAI drones. But now the, the Ukrainians have countered with FPV drones, which are smaller, can move very fast, and are almost damn near undetectable because of how well they fly. So FPV drones are really turning into the, the, the mix of it's it's like almost the perfect mix of danger speed uh lethality fear non it can be detected or almost indetectable until too late so when it comes to drones it's really like FPV drones are disposable rapidly pr- purchasable easy to operate and then kind of given the operator because they're first person view an, an unbelievable advantage at understanding the the terrain and, of course, prosecuting the attack. So FPV drones, I think right now, is like the thing that I'm pulling from. The next one I'm pulling from is just how fragile air defenses are. I think regardless if you're the Russians or the Ukrainians, an air defense, or lack thereof, can really break entire regions uh, under under which you're fighting.
2: It's not going to be a near war
1: as such, has it? That's right. It's really been a missile war, especially when it comes to from, from an air defense perspective. And the the irony is not lost that you've got drones, which are like a twenty first century, two thousand twenties kind of technological advancement. And then you have these integrated air defenses that is effectively forcing the return of the World War One kind of trench warfare, which is kind of unbelievable. Because you're effectively fighting with modern weaponry, and you're getting the same result as what we saw in World War One. You're returning to trench warfare because you have to go down into the earth in order to have some degree of protection. I would offer to you that because of the air defense, there's no really good overhead fires you can prosecute from a fixed wing or rotor wing platform, and so because of that, your your fixed wing fires are further away from the forward line of troops and they're effectively they're they're ineffective and then what you're resorting to is a shoot and scoot artillery and indirect fire kind of situation and artillery in the back i think uh in a a unique way especially when it comes to the war in ukraine ultimately I, i think the biggest thing that comes away beyond all the technological advancements is the fact that nothing can suffice for good soldiering skills, basic soldiering skills, and what we may have seen, and I, I, I don't have, you know, these are only my assertions here, but I suspect that the, the Russians and the Ukrainians lost all of its kind of uh, its kind of highly effective troops that didn't adapt well, uh, that were effective during various these situations. What it has now is kind of the survivor, those that kind of made it somehow, either because they were lucky or because they were able to adapt faster than the weapon systems targeting where war. were.
2: There was a saying in Vietnam that if you could survive the first month, you had a good chance of surviving a year-long tour of duty, so it doesn't really seem that much changed. And we've we'll discussed previously on the pod the lack of good basic skills that you sometimes see on both sides, and uh, that's from personal camouflage and concealment, the use of cam nets and uh, track discipline. These basics, these are basically the building blocks of soldiering and you neglect them at your peril. Another concern I've got is that the, is the West really prepared for a long war like the Russians seem to be doing? It appears that Putin's digging in for the long term, both politically and on the ground. And you get the press he's hoping the West will lose interest. And with the possible change of a president next year in the US, it may well make a difference to what he's expecting his outcome in Ukraine to be. Also, when you look at sanctions, they haven't really crippled the Russian economy. So I just wonder what you think about that.
1: That's a fair question. And, and uh, I'll be you know honest with you, I, I just don't know. But I do know that we've been here before. We've been in this situation before where... We've not been as prepared. You know, I, I give you a great example. During the run-up to World War II, America was doing all that it could, you know, politically and domestically to stay out of the war in Europe. Uh, famously, President Roosevelt was very kind of um, at keeping the war at arm's length, being careful to respect the neutrality agreements, uh, although trying to help the British. We famously had this little lease program where we would give to Canada ships and aircraft, and the British would have to come over and pick it up. And th- there was all these, these uh, uh, legal workarounds the United States was trying to come up with in order to stay neutral. Because domestically, the Americans did not want to go to war. A lot of that has to do with the experience of World War I and the significant casualties the United States faced, Although that pales in comparison to casualties that the British and the French experience. However, it just did not resonate as in, here's another war across the, the pond that uh, America's being called to fight. But what was interesting is that because of the British signal, the American economic and war machine was able to get a warm start. We're already producing aircraft, we're already producing missions and ships to send over to the UK. And famously were sending over pilots as well, like the British-American volunteer pilots from going to China, uh, the AVP flyers, the Flying Tiger, that's there they were now, uh, prior to the United States entering World War II. And in England, American volunteer pilots were going over and becoming Canadians and becoming British citizens to fight. In a way, we got lucky in the United States by having this warm start. And I would offer to you call it There is something very similar that's happening now, where uh, because of the war in Ukraine and the difficult and challenging security environment in the Indo-Pacific, the United States has also got its warm start.
0: real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Uh, I just read the other day that U.S. artillery uh, production is at an all-time high in, like, decades. And it's because we've been able to turn on the factories and there's a demand signal. From Famously, the United States maintains uh, the Arizona aircraft boneyard, which is thousands of aircraft that we have decommissioned that can be brought back online and we have although our uh, naval uh, sea power is kind of a uh, in a weakened state we have more aircraft carriers than all the nations combined our naval air forces alone are larger than most of the nation's air forces combined just for the navy although we may not be on a war footing and I would offer to you that it's our intention there's a bit of kind of that is kind of the reason that 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 is a feature not a bug of the American security system is that we we don't want to go to a war footing and because a war footing means I won't say a catastrophic but it means a kind of a very challenging domestic situation it would kind of signal to our adversaries is that the only option was war here. And I would offer to you that there is some security preservation efforts that goes on by not going into that war footing. Or right now, the Russians, because they are in a war footing, you cannot get any war out of that economy. There just is not going to be war production out there. Famously, the Russians, I just read the other day, have not sold a single piece of war material during the Dubai airship. No one's buying Russia. Their stuff is not good. We're seeing a kind of catastrophically high order explode on the battlefield. I don't know anyone that wants to buy a Russian tank these days, given what we're seeing. So th- there is a kind of cost to go to war footing. Although you're able to produce armament, I think in the case of the Russian economy, it's on a high-speed rail to disaster. There is a uh, criticality when an economy is on a a war footing, that it will just eventually exhaust itself. And given that the Russian economy is on a war footing now, I think it's just a matter of time. And that is, of course, easier said than anything else. But uh, given that the Russian economy is on this war footing, it will eventually consume its most kind of capable aspect and transition to and start cutting away more and more of its capability uh, the, of the Russian economy. And the fact is, is that from the United States' perspective, of course, we want to be cloaked by the uh, kind of industrial light uh, of the United States and be able to produce this high technology, highly capable tools of, of warfare. But the reality is, is that if we can avoid going on to a war footing as an economy, that's a great thing. I mean, the United States economy, as I understand, in the last few quarters has done pretty well. All the while, we've been supporting Ukraine and we've been transitioning in the Indo-Pacific to show the, the the area that the United States intends on staying and not shrink from its obligations and responsibilities as a global superpower. We've been able to do both, kind of relatively low cost to the domestic economy and to uh, U.S. resources, military resources.
2: Yeah, and countries in Europe haven't invested properly in their armed forces for decades now. And you have the examples of Poland, where it's pouring huge amounts of money into its defence over the next five years. And at the other end of the scale, you have Germany, who, according to a recent report, will be ready for long-term combat operations for another 15 years. And the UK is, is no innocent here. Our force have been hollowed out for years now. So defense is a real big concern in uh, Europe. If I was a
1: European soldier, whether I was in the German army or the Swedish army or the uh, an Englishman sitting in the British army, well, I would be concerned uh, as NATO countries, we have differing attitudes towards what is, you know, a good standing military and, what the reality that has been built in the NATO kind of structure is, though, although the countries are now investing, it just takes generations to invest into a strong and capable military, and it just takes a long time to turn that ship around, really. and it takes continued, consistent investment. I know that NATO, NATO has had a minimum standard of of investment into its military. Other than Poland, no NATO country has met its legal obligations for military invest I, I really think that it boils down to your capability uh, i'll be honest with you you know i'm very impressed that the royal navy was able to build two aircraft carrier although it has one in kind of a mothball, semi decommissioned state uh the reality is is that the return of the royal navy the, is a good thing the return of the Royal Navy onto the seas and its ability to project power, and secure the, the global economy alongside its partners is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with a strong Royal Navy. And a matter of fact, uh, the United Kingdom enjoyed a strong Royal Navy for generations.
2: Yeah, the problem with these Elizabeth-class carriers is that the Royal Navy, a bit like the US Navy, is having huge problems with recruitment at the minute, which is affecting the ability to meet commitments. And there's also issues with affordability of aircraft carriers and adequate carrier escort vessels. So, whether or not it's a, an enduring capability is up for debate.
1: That's all true. In the United States, the Navy is experiencing recruiting issues as well and experiencing kind of famously issues with its ships that it's bought. It's having decommissioned relatively new ships just because they're not exactly what we need to engage with the peer adversary. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the United States has made mistakes with its investments and in its military. It's famously underinvested and overinvested, and by thing. But I think the NATO countries are starting to kind of wake up to the reality that the, the war in Ukraine is not ending soon. Uh, we're always hopeful for the kind of new fighting season to be their change maker, but as we're learning this Ukraine war, the the Ukrainians are not going to give up, and for all intents and purposes, they just need to outlast the Russian will. And that is the question here, is how long can the Russian people hold out against Putin's tyrannical uh, dictatorship and his kind of insane effort to, to seize wide swaths of Ukraine? How long can the Ukrainians hold out, and how long can the Russian people put up with it?
2: Yeah, as we discussed earlier, Putin is uh, playing the long game here, I think, uh, he's pinning his hopes on a change in U.S. leadership and hoping to bleed out Ukrainians on the battle space.
1: I I think that's a that's a fair assessment. War is an extension of politics. If I was a uh, individual that was in the kind of inner circle of Putin, I would be very very concerned. Because every day that that war in Ukraine goes off without resolution to the favor of the Russians is another day that Putin's demise can occur.
2: Another area I want to discuss is what's happening over in Israel and Gaza, where it looks like Israel has suffered a catastrophic intelligence failure and the idea for being caught out by a smaller force using innovative tactics like hang gliders. And you can see how they're also copying tactics, techniques and procedures from Ukraine um, i.e. the use of cheap drones to drop ordnance. So I was just wondering what your thoughts and what you have seen in the fight in there.
1: You know, support to Israel is obviously in America's interest. And America has a long history of support to Israel. And both of our militaries, the IDF and the U.S. military, had a long good relationship that has you know, contributed to each other's defense. Uh, famously, you know, the Russian or the the um, the Israeli defense forces uh, rely heavily on US military aid the good news is that the Israeli defense forces is is a kind of national a truly national identity military in the sense that every Israeli serves and so what they built is this kind of identity through the military and it's been able to kind of unify what is effectively multiple disparate cultures and people of different origins that have come to Israel because they're Jewish. Israel has a, a very powerful military. But even then, like on 9-11 and October 7th, as tragic as it is, it is Israel 9-11. And the reality, I think that the Israelis will do a post-mortem on what happened what took place, what were the information and intelligence gaps, what were the mistakes and assertions that were made. Uh, just this morning the New York Times has released an article saying that there are indications that the Israeli knew of an attack, didn't have a date, but something similar to the scope and scale that took place on 7th October. I would tell you kind of hindsight is always 2020. 20. It's always easy, easy to look back at the many thousands and millions of streams of data and trying to kind of sift through and make these predictive analysis. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Israel is a unique democracy in the uh, the region. Continued support to Israel is something that's in America's interest. Uh, I think that the president made this very clear. I, I think ultimately that Israel will have to do a an internal look at the kind of what went wrong there and make hard changes to its national security architecture and the way it makes the based on intelligence work.
2: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the lessons learned from fighting in that very dense, heavily populated urban environment with a huge, complex tunnel system. We've not really heard much about it at the minute as most attention is on the fires being directed against Hamas who are sheltering in buildings amongst the population.
1: Yeah, you know, definitely if you're following a lot of the Israeli accounts on Telegram, I I think we're seeing just how brutal that urban warfare is. But also, you know, Hamas as a terror organization is fighting an asymmetric war, obviously by taking prisoners, and, you know, it's a kind of great example of that. doesn't wear uniforms, uh, operates on the fringes of society, uses... At human shields and what is traditionally protective protected buildings that was uh, schools hospitals and so you can certainly get emotional about all of that but the reality is you're facing a terror movement who will kind of break all the rules of warfare but continuing u.s support and assistance will kind of keep the israelis and anyone else that involved from its worst tenants, which naturally war tends to bring
2: out. Your yeah, Cognitive Marine Instagram account is going from strength to strength and I see you have a variety of conversations across the rank structures with colleagues with subjects as varied as um, availability of uniform to issues with Taiwan and China. What's your ambition for the account and what sort of impact do you think it's having?
1: Uh, that, that's a great question, Cole. You know, i, I got to be honest with you. Well, one of the things I were appreciative, especially with you, was that the account has been able to give me access to the people and thoughts that you know, and, and you have you know, very kind of uh, uh, unique positions on things that ultimately is very similar to the United States, but also different, and I'm eager to learn from guys like you and others. The account, the cognitive brain, has been able to give me access to all of these people out of a level playing field that otherwise would have been impossible. But to answer your question about what is the end state here, I think one day management of the account will be impossible for me. And some, some, sometimes, like, I feel that those days are sooner rather than later. But ultimately, I feel at some point in the near future, I think a real possibility I'm going to hand the account over to someone else. I don't know who. I don't know why. I don't know when, but by keeping my face and kind of other aspects of the account out, me out of it makes this easier. I think that some of the people listening or who will see this eventually on Instagram. I think they may say, Oh, there's no way, but uh, the reality is, is that. Uh, If you were to sit in my shoes and be the stream and thought, the very provocative and very kind of nuanced and well-thought positions that people have, I think you would kind of come to realize that, man, I am like surrounded by some really intelligent people that reach out to me often and frequently have better, more nuanced, more detailed responsive to many of the issues that i bring up than even i could have imagined so i, I think what what um use of instagram and through the cognitive brain has been able to do for me is kind of uh my perceptions about uh, what i know and certainly what i don't know. and i i really learn from a lot of the people often Guys like you, Colin, are great teachers of kind of and, and, uh, reveal to me in kind of unvarnished, unquestioned terms as to the depths of the things I don't. And it's, it's, it certainly has humbled me and really shaped my, the, the way I approach my job because I'm now keenly, I'm more keenly aware now because I talk to literally thousands of people every week. From all walks of life, with all different variable degrees of expertise, that um, just how little I truly know about uh, kind of the 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 subjects that I'm engaged on. To answer your question, it's been great.
2: Yeah, used well, I think it's a fantastic tool. But also, conversely, used badly, it's awful. Because I don't know if you saw those. I think it was a Twitter post by either. A U.S. Army officer or a U.S. Marine Corps also. Yeah. Is it the, about the yeah. most time promotions? Uh, no, <laughs> don't know. It. Basically, he was, he's complaining about soldiers being promoted from the rights, inspecting the pool of commissioned officers. <laughs> and
1: yeah. Way it does so, it like
2: a bucket <laughs> film set got burned and slotted down?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, no doubt, social media. Uh, As you well know, if you are on the wrong side of a of an issue, may may God be with you.
2: I thought it was a parody account at one point.
1: My gut instinct tells me whoever wrote that did so like as a real person, but did so to kind of troll. There's no way someone in this modern era thinks that they're going to say something like that, and it's not going to like erupt. But it got everybody's attention and. You know, I'm impressed. You know, across the pond, you uh, you you're tracking it. You, you got all oh, no, that same details I do. Yeah, uh, it. it What's w- remarkable that the British uh, military's got a lot of prior enlisted officers. That's right.
2: Yeah, they tend to have uh, one in each subunit, and the competition's got a bit harder from what I gather. But the route is easier for people to make the jump, if that makes sense. But moving on. I recently listened to a podcast with Jim Webb, a decorated former Marine officer who won a Navy Cross, Silver Star, Bronze Star and Purple Heart uh, in Vietnam and he's the author of eight books including Fields of Fire which in my opinion is one of the best novels about the war in Vietnam. He's a high achiever and serves as a Senator, Secretary of the Navy and Assistant Secretary of Defence for Reserve Affairs. On this podcast he discussed Colonel Pete Ellis, a US Marine Corps Intelligence Officer whose life reads like a film script. He wrote Ops Plan 712, Advanced Space Operations of Micronesia that formed the basis of the US campaign of amphibious assault against Japan in World War II. I'd never heard of him before, but is he well-known the Marines and is there any like him today?
1: He certainly is well-known among certain groups of Marines. I, I think if you were to ask your average Marine, they wouldn't know who he Dallas is. They would recognize the name, they, but they would have no context about who or what he did. I think amongst those that are in the know and that understand what he did and how he died and this contribution to the Marine Corps, I think there is kind of a a, um, a unanimous position within the Marine Corps that Pete Ellis was well ahead of its time. It was so much so that you almost need a Pete Ellis, a guy who is willing to kind of put it all on the line. And what's interesting about Pete Ellis is that he died and dies, you know, under suspicious circumstances, and many assume, I think rightly so, that he was murdered by the Japanese. But Pete Ellis had some uh, skeletons in the closet. He drank too much, he was an imperfect guy, and that's one of the reasons why I like him, is because he's not a perfect marine by any stretch of the imagination. But what's really impressive about Pete Ellis, and I think that we, whether you're in rink war or any service, needs to pull away. Is that Pete Ellis truly believing in what he believed in, and that he was willing to put it all in the line to kind of validate his position? And that, that alone is worth more to me. Some people get enamored with promotions, position, command or not command, or whatever. Your contribution is to the military you serve or the role you're serving but at the end of the day all of us want to have some kind of contribution that we truly believe in and that we all are willing to put it on the line for. and uh, you know ultimately none of us want to die for you know everything every kind of wild idea each one of us have but we certainly want to put it on the line and I take a few pages from Pete Ellis. I'll admit that I, I at times, I try to emulate him when it comes to things that I believe in, like an Forge and our responsibility and leaders to kind of prepare our units for to what is to come. I think we, we we should be putting in our little line like Pete Ellis, and if we believe in it, write about it because you know stick your claim on. Be proud of the fact that you believe what you believe. Don't shrink. And I think if we do all of that, then not only do we kind of embody Pete Ellis, but we allow the lesson that Pete Ellis gave in the light to continue on within what it is to be a Marine.
2: It's interesting you use that phrase, what it is to be a Marine. Uh, I saw a social media post recently put up by a, a U.S. Marine, and on it he said, you can join up for self-improvement and to get qualifications, but at the end of the day, the Marines is about closing with and killing the enemy. I paraphrase, but you get my drift. I understand what he meant, but a modern fighting force offer has to be one that potential recruits want to take up. So what are your thoughts about balancing that offer and meeting the realities of being a Marine, which for a lot of people will involve closing with and conti- uh, closing with and killing an enemy?
1: It's a fair question. There's something that the US Army is struggling and the US Navy is struggling with. And that is the, how to bridge the service gap between those who have come to enjoy the freedoms that you know, have been hard earned and paid for in blood. How do I, as a Marine officer, convince the average Joe that it's worth joining the Marine? I think by conversations like we're having right now, Eventually, will reach the ear of uh, civilian weather. He's a uh, some British bloke, you know, chomping on fish and chips, and some train station that will listening to this podcast as he's transiting the tube, or some dude riding a bus going home from high school um, in some small town in Iowa, and everyone in between is going to listen to this podcast, and I hope that they. Hear some common themes, and that is not only does joining the military, but the Marine Corps offer you opportunities unlike any other, but it also gives you an opportunity to be someone the best version of yourself and be that person. I I think a lot of people kind of tend to daydream, postulate what it is to be the best version of yourself. Some people are enamored with money or fame, whatever it may be, but ultimately, to be respected by your peers, to, to go in the arm's way, to come back and kind of share these war stories and kind of positions and beliefs, to have served with such great people, that, that is the value.
2: Yeah, and those aren't necessarily tangible skills. They don't feature on a paycheck at the end of the month. They aren't on a certificate you get for doing a course. And the quandary is, how do you get that across to the people that you're trying to recruit, and then your adverts,
1: I'll give credit to where credit is due. The British uh, Royal Marines have got some incredible adverts. God, oh, they it's like, us. yeah, it is like, holy cow, sign me up! Yeah, and then it just kind of really evoke the inherent like masculinity or uh, the power of of service. What that means to a young man or to a young yeah. woman. And that, regardless of your sexual orientation or your religious beliefs, or your even your political beliefs, that service within a kind of core group—whether you're aircraft mechanic, cook, or infantryman—you can carve out your own world, your own respectable world in that uh, kind of organization. And that—that's that, something that I wish I could deliver to more people. I, I go back and I tell you that I do talk to thousands of people. Practically every week, I engage with maybe tens of thousands per month. There are some common themes in there, and people tend to gravitate to these kind of core positions, and that I just kind of reiterated there. I think if you just uh, share that, it's like it has an attraction all its own. And, you know, it's as old as time. Uh, People are enamored with kind of the hard life or the difficult life and the earned life, the well-earned one. And it's re- really phenomenal.
2: That's a great phrase, that well-earned life. We're going to wrap up now. So what book are you reading at the minute, and uh, what are you going to recommend to the listeners?
1: So right now, I'm reading a book called 2034, and it's about the future of warfare. And it was written by a uh, famous uh, Navy Admiral, who recently was the uh, commander of uh, paycom about a decade ago 2034 really kind of paints a picture of what the what the reality of warfare would look like in 2034 ai machine learning rapid targeting and how fast technology can change the battlefield but on the same vein 2034 calls out some very basics of training and uh readiness like good unit leadership uh, also make the day if you read 2034, I think you take kind of your slice out of it, you know, whatever kind of organization you kind of grow up at and your, your angles, you could certainly pull your own storyline out of that book. And for me, I'd be the same here, but the storyline I pull out of 2034 is that you can, that nothing can suffice, uh, was a, uh, nothing, very little can be a And at the end of the day, I think that's what matters.
2: Well, we're going to finish now, so it's been great to catch up again, and uh, I looked up Okinawa just before recording recorded this episode, and I didn't realise what a nice place it was with great beaches. It's a bit of a holiday destination.
1: Yeah, Colin, I'll, I'll make this uh, invitation publicly to you, man. You're welcome to come out and stay.
2: Yeah, no, that's really appreciated, and uh, I mentioned that to my wife the other day there, but I got in the bit about the beaches being a paradise first and uh, the battlefield tours second.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're a propagandist my my own, uh, my own clock here.
2: That's it for another episode. Thanks to our guests for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming, and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as normal. You can find us at all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and if you download us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you leave a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from. And thanks again to Nick Beal for his continuing help and support for his company ISA. And we'll see you next time on the Unconventional Soldier.